Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Vowles. Good evening and welcome. Tonight we're going to be talking about independent learning, identity formation and wisdom in education with college professor, coach and writer Dr Ronnie Gladden who will be with us live from the US. So join us as we explore different approaches to developing student independence, teachers as agents of student self-realisation. Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone and welcome to the Sunday Late Show. Many of you in the UK, I expect, will be in the midst of exam season with students up and down the country gaining their first true experiences of the exam room and peculiar cultures that come with them. The jigging about from foot to foot outside the exam hall before the nine o'clock start. The set tasks timed to the minute. The sudden fashion for transparent Ziploc pencil cases. The supervised isolation lunches of exam class students. And stranger still, whole mornings and afternoons spent free of the tyranny of instant messages and notifications. Our students are quickly becoming au fait with the quirks of the English examination system. In other respects, however, this has been a rather muted season so far. As of today, I have only heard of one impossible question set so far. A GCSE maths paper on the 22nd of May featured a final question that asked students to work out the area of a part of a circle overlapped by two other circles. Having watched a few maths teachers offering their solutions on YouTube, I was surprised to see that this wasn't, as it turned out, a case of a misprinted question slipping past Edexcel's proofreading team. No, it was just a really, really time-consuming task that involved bringing to an unfamiliar problem a variety of knowledge and techniques that math students have been working on in most, most schools since year seven. So not impossible at all then, as many newspaper front pages claimed within the week. Just very, very difficult. So difficult, in fact, that the quickest teacher modelled walkthrough I have seen runs to a full 15 minutes, with the notation and final written workings approaching essay length. But surely it's a good thing that our strongest GCSE mathematicians are given something very time-consuming and difficult to do as they approach the end of their maths paper, isn't it? The step up from GCSE maths to A-level maths is a considerable one after all. Similarly, there has been some discussion online about the accessibility of the AQA GCSE English language paper, paper one, descriptive writing task. For those of you unfamiliar with this exam, Students are presented with an image prompt and a text prompt for the final 45-minute writing question and asked to write a story or a piece of description for 25% of their total qualification marks. The picture accompanying the descriptive instruction this time 
was of a brightly coloured circular kitchen with no people in shot, no food in sight, and the basic cooking appliances you would expect to find in such a place. Was that the inside of a yurt? Were these, were those orthodox crosses on the wall? Was that a plastic mermaid surveying the scene from a high shelf above a row of multicoloured beakers? What was the last meal that had been prepared, cooked and eaten there? Well, it seemed that the image had been lifted from an online holiday rentals website and that this unfamiliar looking kitchen was the bright centre of a Mexican holiday home. You can book it yourself today if you're looking for a break in a nice four bedroomed house in the summer sunshine. Our students responded pretty well to it, I think, having been drilled in our own particular approach to developing good literary description in 45 minutes. Although some people regularly question the value of getting students to generate descriptive writing in the exam room, I think literary description can be done well without reverting to the more familiar mode of storytelling. A snapshot student room survey of English language paper one survivors found that 21% of candidates loved the paper, 38% thought it was reasonable, and just 16% thought it was terrible. I imagine some of those 16% would have been responsible for the now customary subtitled downfall parody YouTube clip as Hitler responds to the latest offerings of the exam boards with anguish and rage although most of the ire seemed to be reserved for the reading questions based on Steinbeck's The Pearl and the fight between a young boy and a scorpion. Steinbeck's novel contains some beautiful descriptive passages that lend themselves nicely to the analysis of literary devices. Literary description, of course, sits at the centre of so many great novels by authors of the pre-cinema era, Austin, the Brontes, Dickens, Fielding, Radcliffe, Stern, to name just a few. I have started looking at Herbert Reed's strange 1935 novel, The Green Child, which tells the story of an English-born South American dictator who returns to the English village of his birth. Reed, who was born not far from my house and is buried in the churchyard a mile down the road, draws heavily on the sounds and colours of Rydale for inspiration. The opening chapter simply describes the landscape as the protagonist follows the course of a stream through the fields and villages towards its source. This will no doubt prove to be highly metaphorical, but the pages and pages and pages of river description show that detailed observation of the natural environment is an extremely challenging task and one that 21st century readers rarely seem to encounter in contemporary fiction. There is little sense of forward momentum in plot terms at this stage, just a slow meandering through a timeless world. Here's an example from chapter one, as Olivero steps off a train and enters the marketplace of a village and proceeds to walk the course of the stream in the gathering night. He decided, late as it was, to proceed upstream to solve the problem. The moonlight was sufficiently strong to show the way, and who knows but that in the dark his early instincts 
might the easier revive and reveal to him the paths which he had known as a boy, fishermen's paths along the banks of the stream, difficult paths for any stranger. But before actually setting out, he bent over the stream by a stone step where the villagers brought their pails to fill, and drawing back his cloak and sleeve, he dipped his hand in the stream right up to his sensitive wrist and felt the flow of the cold water, thus confirming by an independent sense the impression which he had received from his eyes. While like most men, he was content to be guided by the superior sense of sight, yet there was no harm, indeed some considerable comfort in adding yet another sensual witness to such a rationally incomprehensible fact. It was now about eight o'clock. He had had tea at the junction where he had changed for the branch line, and in this part of the country tea is the last meal of the day. There was no reason, therefore, why he should return to the inn, and the innkeeper might naturally suppose that he had gone out to visit friends. The main street was now quite deserted. In an hour, most of the lights would be out, for already people were going to bed. He walked slowly along until he came to the stone bridge. Here the street went straight on, whilst the stream, still accompanied by a smaller road, turned to the left. There was not much point in lingering on the bridge. It arched itself high above the bed of the stream, and at night there were no fish to be seen. But as if only to repeat an earlier habit, Olivero went and looked over the stone cresting down to where the water looked black and sullen in the shadow of the arch. Nothing, however, was to be gained by staying there, and he soon left the bridge and took the road to the mill. There was still no perceptible incline in the ground, so Olivero did not stop to consider whether there was yet a contradiction in that elementary law of physics which decrees that water can never flow uphill. That law, as he now recalled, Olivero had had some difficulty in believing when it was first enunciated to him at school. He knew long stretches of the stream, which when seen from a neighbouring hill, had all the appearance of sloping upwards in the direction of the flow. Besides, water was not a powerless element. It had cohesion, as you might observe in a drop of rain, clinging like a crystal bead to the edge of a cabbage leaf, mirroring the whole world on its hard surface. Again, it had always seemed possible to his boyish reasoning that the force which impelled him, which impelled water downwards, should be capable of impelling the same water upwards. And when it was explained to him that this force was the force of gravity, it still seemed a reasonable calculation to allow that a stream of water which had fallen for X number of feet over a distance of Y miles should be capable of rising X to nine number of feet over a distance of Y to nine miles. The factor N might of course be considerable owing to the regrettable tendency of water to slip backwards, but still, on any reasonable basis of probability, one might expect a stream to flow up a gentle incline of, say, 500 yards. I think you get the idea. How would this descriptive passage score with AQA examiners in 2022? It contains a variety of 
punctuation and sentence structures, blends complex and simple vocabulary, and at three extended paragraphs in length is something that a grade eight or nine student could just feasibly produce in 45 minutes. But would they ever write like this? It is not so long ago that our IGCSE first language English students were asked by Cambridge International to describe a view from a riverbank for 60 minutes. But is anyone these days as attentive as Herbert Reed, as willing to let the stones make their own music, as comfortable with the unmistakable melodies of a North Yorkshire mill leet? I wonder what the world's reaction might be if I ever do write that novel about the single pebble that moves from one end of Chesil Beach to the other by means of longshore drift. More on that another time. Tonight, we are going to explore the other great work that teachers do when they are not drilling students for the challenges of public examinations, not presenting them with model answers to emulate, and not inventing mnemonics to be carried into the exam room. We might loosely think of this work as defined by the term formation, which in my own faith school context certainly has religious and spiritual connotations. But formation might be thought of more broadly as an ongoing process in which the teacher seeks to cultivate a sense of independence, a capacity for self-definition and individual expression, and an appreciation for inherited wisdom in the student. A process defined by emerging and by becoming a process by which each student takes a route through education as unique as that of my Chesil Beach pebble along the Dorset coast. Joining me on the show tonight from Ohio in the US to discuss student independence, formation and wisdom, among other things, is Dr. Ronnie Gladden. Ronnie is a coach, actor, author and English teacher at Cincinnati State Technical and Community College who argues that good teaching is about assisting students with the challenge of negotiating between the connected and disconnected points of insight, knowledge and wisdom, so that they might gain a fuller sense of their own personal cosmography. Having studied English at the University of Cincinnati before taking master's degrees at Xavier and Miami universities, Ronnie completed his doctorate in education at Northern Kentucky University and has since produced and written the TV documentary series Ronnie and the Others, examining issues of race, gender and sexual identity and the award-winning comedy film Not Zilla. Ronnie now works with a range of academic institutions and young people to cultivate a better understanding of inclusive practice in education and I'm pleased to say that we have Ronnie on the line. Welcome to the show, Ronnie, and thank you for joining us on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you, Christopher, for having me. It is quite an honor. I hope I've presented a true and faithful account of your work and interest, Ronnie, but is there anything you would like to add? Sure. I would also add that in addition to processing complex social constructs such as race, I also have the privilege to appear on the Rachel Divide documentary that, as far as I know, is still on Netflix. Fantastic. And what were you looking at in that particular film? So in that film, there is the discussion of 
complex identity, especially with respect to race. So we know that race, at least in the United States, is a part of a 400-year institution that is predicated on slavery and what have you. And race, in many instances, has been seen as pretty much immutable. It's something that one is assigned, and they have that as their destiny for life. But there is the controversial Rachel Dolezal who challenged that. She was born as white and female. However, she transitioned, and we can put that in quotation marks, to appear as black and female. And so I'm looking at how race may actually be more, much more flexible and malleable instead of immutable. Perfect. I think we might return to that in the second part of the show where we'll have a bit more space, I think, to, to cover that in a bit more detail. Should we start, Ronnie, by thinking about your particular teaching context in the US? How does your experience in the US education system inform your thinking about teaching and developing student independence? Well, fortunately, this is a country that does champion free speech and intellectual freedom, and that is very much a part of the fabric of this country. And in current times, that thought, as good as it is, has created some silos, it has created some extremes with respect to views, but nevertheless, it has encouraged debate, sometimes constructive, sometimes it isn't. And with respect to teaching, I like to keep that same premise in operation where you continue to interrogate the information that's presented before you fostering independent thinking self-determination not in a disrespectful way but really to look at the text and the subtext and as a professor of english i mean that's very much a part of narrative construction there's always what's stated and then what isn't stated the denotation and the connotation so we want to have students to look more deeply and see the intricacies. And I think the way that you framed the beginning of the show, making reference to Olivero and talking about Reed's work and seeing how Olivero was really immersed inside of his environment and looking at the intricacies and the quantum mechanics of water perhaps moving up, water moving down, and seeing how other sorts of species like the fish interact with the environment just the same. He's, he's, he's canvassing where he is, and that's what I like to see inside of education is have the students to really to survey the cause and effect of circumstances and seeing the intricacies, how things are interconnected with narratives and stories to make meaning-making and seeing how they themselves also fit in the environment similar to the way that you described Olivero earlier on in the show. Yeah, that's a fascinating link that you've made between the sense of Americanness and Herbert Reed's very obvious, strange Northern Yorkshire Englishness, and this sense of identity being something that is partly conditioned by the environments in which we find themselves. Do you think in America, the debate about identity and self-determination partly goes back to the founding of the nation as well. Is there, is there some added layer there that you think is significant 
for us to think when we're thinking about the American system? I do. And I think a part of the unrest that we have right now, unfortunately, with respect to shootings, with respect to lots of protests, with respect to the fight for reproductive rights and things along those lines, is that we are in a review process. And that review process does involve our history. And so I think that there are lots of problematic layers that exist in terms of ruling class and those that are subordinate, the struggle for freedom versus control. And I think we are still reckoning with regard to how we started as a nation, you know, just having a few founding fathers and some hemp and, and slaves and whatnot. It just has the the foundation of inequity that's here. I think that there are lots of improvements, but there's a new call to determine where do we go from here, particularly as a nation continues to diversify. Um, the majority is in question, like there's statements about the great replacement theory, for instance, meaning that there may be fewer white individuals inhabiting the United States as a part of the majority. And as that may give way, there's lots to discuss and lots to process. So, and it takes us back to those founding elements of iniquities, as I mentioned. So yes, I think that we do have to come to terms with um, our historicity, where we started, where we are now, and where we're going, particularly as demographics may look very different from the way that they otherwise have in this country. Are you moving towards an uncommon sense of what you think America might be? I think that's a part of the inflection point is that we're rewriting the script. We, we're rewriting a lot of the mores, you know, similar to the way the founding fathers were writing the initial documents, the governing documents, you know, in the beginning. So what will things look like where there's been so much progress with respect to say LGBTQ rights, with respect to rights for women, et cetera. But then all of a sudden it seems like there are some rollbacks in that way. So there's kind of this advance and retreat dynamic that's here. And so where will the pendulum settle? And I think that that's what we're trying to do. And when it comes back to education, yeah, we'll look at that in terms of, you know, where the control of the narrative will be in the curricula, you know, and how we will respond, you know, with policymakers and, and whatnot. So there's a lot of soul searching. There's a lot that's fluid at this moment right now. So we are in the process of evaluating that. Fantastic. We've got a listener here called NK Inc. who says they're listening in from Ghana, West Africa. So it'd be interesting to get a perspective from them on, on the discussion tonight too, I think. Certainly. So, so if we're thinking about these kind of, I suppose these are kind of grand narratives, aren't they, of America and who America is, what implications do those have for the day-to-day -day experience of being in a school classroom in the United States? So in a school classroom, I think that there's the challenge of sustaining, I would say, a little bit of the... Uh, of the authority and, and expertise uh, 
we're at a point now where so much is available in an instant, in an instant way with respect to information, you know, Googling it or, or whatnot. And I think sometimes students can forget that the professors, the teachers have devoted much of their lives to their subjects. And without understanding that process that it takes to ingest and digest and absorb and think through critically with respect to content and context, that may not be appreciated. And so then who has control over the narrative? Who has control over how we learn and uh, is a bit of a free-for-all there. So in the classroom, I think that there's this, this uh, need to strike a balance between having discussion, absolutely, letting students to learn in the way that makes sense to them and to learning their own truths, absolutely, because that is a part of my philosophy, but then still at the same time, allowing for a bit of reverence, allowing for a bit of respect for those that are a bit more learned in the subject matter and wanting to appreciate that and to learn from that. So I think that that's, that, that is an issue. And so you, you find teachers that may struggle sometimes with the classroom management of competing with the blinking screen, you know, and mm. the, the, the cell phone or whatever other sort of PDA device, because it's like, if I can, acquire the information from this bleeping screen from this from this device and it's going to have as much as you know and more then what are you here for so we have to learn how to redefine the roles in, in that sense so there are some challenges there particularly with the pandemic as well too because there's been even more reliance on those blinking screens yeah how was the pandemic experience in the united states <laughs> well I, we're still reeling from this the the culminating effect right now is apathy. I saw a report from the Chronicle of Higher Education that surveyed that surveyed a number of different institutions, you know, from entry level institutions like mine, which is a two year college to help to onboard students to prepare for their careers and for four year institutions, all the way through to the elite institutions and the common denominator throughout higher education was that many students just did not care. Many students hmm. disengaged. Many students were distracted. Many students were perplexed. Many students felt like, you know what, maybe now just isn't the right time, so I won't even try. In spite of having lots of infrastructure to support them with various funding from the government, with various, even new support staff being hired to work with students and to modify their schedules and meet them where they are, uh, this, this uh, despair and lack of hope. So that's the sum total effect. At the very beginning, of course, it was like, I'm sure it was in your country as well as around the world, just baptism by fire. We didn't know what we didn't know. For many people, they may not ever have taught online. So many had to build a plane while in flight, you know, effectively mm. having to try to learn the technology to interface the curricula with online, have the deliverables there. So it was just chaos uh, in the beginning, obviously. But now for some educators, they feel forlorn because all of that work to get it right, or at least to try to get it right, they may feel like it was all for naught. 
because there's disengagement in higher ed and in terms of the K-12, there's some of that there as well too. And I think um, we had mentioned before that we do have some students that are still in high school that are working to complete their high school education while at the same time they're taking college classes. And so they're in both worlds and navigating. Now, many of them, I have to give them credit, they've done well. And some of those students may be some of the most supported and have some of the most resources. But it, even even so, I still have heard narratives from a student. I remember one in particular, she said, you know, um, I'm in high school, I'm trying to prepare for college, and hmm. I'm doing your class as well as finishing high school, and there's a sick family member, and there's everything here with the pandemic. And guess what, by the way, I'm actually working full time in preparation for what I will be doing in college. So there are some real students that definitely are committed to this and and that's what we want to have but but those are sometimes you don't always have access to that so the pandemic has been quite chaotic and i could imagine it's been very similar in your experience as well yeah we've we've had issues i mean i I teach in an international school so quite a lot of our students were joining us online from different time zones across the course of the school week and we teach a six-day week at my school monday to saturday so that, that proved challenging, trying to record some key stuff that you wanted students to know. But there are some things, you know, you'll know this from English teaching, some things you want to do live in English teaching, and there's, there's no substitute for that kind of live interaction and experience of yes. question and answer in, in the room. So most of our students were very, very pleased to be back, actually, um, when we finally got given the go-ahead by the government over here. And if I think about the, the student you mentioned, it's, it's quite difficult, isn't it, to really feel positive, one would imagine, if it's so clear that you're suffering from a, a lack or a deficit, a kind of sense of lostness in terms of the learning that you think you should have. Has the narrative been framed largely like that in America? I think that it has. I think that it has, because you think of before 2020, So what were a lot of the students and educators doing in 2019, 2018, 2017, 2016? You know, they were, many of them were on an upward slope, on an upward trajectory towards getting to their dream institution, you know, towards earning a particular certificate or what have you. So they had already engineered a sort of plan and were on a particular playbook, really, if you will, that they were operating from. And then all of a sudden, you know, a lot of that just went right out of the door. So yes, for many, it has fostered a lot of apathy, a lot of ambivalence without question. And for some, they think that it exposed a lot of the weaknesses that were there inside of education to begin with. You know, so some may have, I've I've heard teachers say, that you know i have imposter syndrome you know i'm up here Hmm. you know teaching um, and i don't really know if i'm fully prepared and some of that in the states is a reflection on some of the teacher preparatory programs there are many fine teacher preparatory programs in the u.s but others have criticized them saying that some of what is taught in those schools don't fully align with the realities of what's required inside of the classroom so if that was already there as a baseline, and then you add this sort of chaotic disruption, many felt that things were 
exposed and you know we saw the the wizard behind the curtain and it it was some person just you know handling the levers and pulling them and there was no oz and they feel disillusioned and so that's something to contend with and you know what we still see even these years into it we're in the middle of 2022 just about and the enrollment in a lot of the public schools the k-12 schools have been precipitously declining you know and it accelerated with this pandemic some of the declines were there but it really accelerated especially among students of color and that same sort of attrition problem also extrapolates to higher education there's a lot of drops there as well too especially in in my type of institution a two-year college so yeah i you know that narrative i think is there and and there are some things that certainly need to be improved so this is quite the opportunity you know if we want to look at the upside to this is in institutions like higher ed and maybe even sometimes in k-12 where you can be lulled into thinking in centuries in terms Mm. of how you structure your your curricula and the way of doing things now you're forced right now to make new changes to better serve our community so so i think that that's a good thing and in time more improvements will come what kind of strategies were you used to try and shake off this sense of apathy apart it sounds like a lot of money was thrown at things that's it's fairly similar to what happened over here actually um schemes were set up and money was spent on one-to-one tuition for certain students to help them catch up mm-hmm. but is there anything else that was going on at the time yeah and some of the money hasn't been fully utilized which is i think another indication of some of the the bureaucratic different you know maze that's there and, and you have some scatter shots sometimes and 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 you don't even get to utilize the funds that are there so i think that that's an issue but uh right now yeah i mean the money has certainly been used on technology which is good as of late in the wake of the unfortunate mass school shooting events that have just been in this this country and most recently in texas uh, there are some schools that are already preempting their environments and they are now doubling down and investing in safety. I just read that there is a school right now, they have impl- they've installed bulletproof glass and, uh, you know, inside of their school, uh, they're putting uh, panic buttons, they're, they're making some other structural changes. So I think that's good. There's in this state, Ohio, renewed discussion about arming teachers. And I've heard that. I mean, what, what's your view on that? I feel very uncomfortable with that because I think it's adding to the maze to the system that is already a problem. There, there's a gun control issue, gun issue, period. And just to hmm. add more guns, more arms to this, I think is an issue. This the governor of this state just recently signed a law that would further reduce requirements for those that have that have their guns legally, of course, but they would not have to have as much training and in terms of, you know, concealed carry that there's just some lax standards that are there. Even some of the police have said that they think that that would only foment the problem and and would not be good. So you, you have 
more lax laws right now in this state as well as some others, and then the possible arming of teachers, I, I just think it can create just a volatile environment that there's more climate and cultural changes, cultural competency that needs to be done in schools. Yeah, to be to be honest with you, Ronnie, we I think many of us over here on the other side of the pond just just look at guns and just think it it just makes no logical sense to us. It's one of those really really difficult things, I think. Yeah. Um, from our position in Europe, where we just we just hear the conversation coming across the airwaves, and we we just it's just something we literally don't understand. I I don't understand why. A government would wish to spend so much money on bulletproofing buildings when the government theoretically if it has the monopoly on power i know that's a big issue in america mm -hmm. um, to begin with but if it does have the monopoly of on power and violence essentially why guns aren't just taken out of the hands of civilians yeah it, it's a real issue uh, one of the prominent senators in the country was purported to have said well, you know, we could have avoided what happened in, I think it's Oofdale, I think is how you say it, in Texas. Uh, perhaps if there is a limit to, there's only one way to enter the school, there's one way to get out, and you have them armed, you have armed security, that that's a way of doing things. But, you know, immediately, that's one, you, you have fire risk, fire hazard, you know, mm. with that sort of limitation, uh, if you're thinking that. And two, I mean, I think that only adds for what some see is just too close of an alignment between that of what happens in, in prisons, you know, systems where people are incarcerated and then the schools. And I know you've, you've done another podcast on that subject. And, and certainly there should be education there for those people that are in the penal system. And you mentioned in that particular show that you know that's oftentimes the population that is forgotten and yet there's still a need to to benefit but you know they're there for corrective measures in a lot of ways and, and the school is still very different you know from the penal system and I don't think that that's the way to model how we would want to do that whether that's intentional or or not so yeah there's uh, quite a bit of of restructuring to be done I believe Mm, it's, it certainly strikes me as a, as a, I don't know how it sounds, as a potential contradiction that the government feels that the population need to be armed to protect them from an overbearing government. Exactly. Um, exactly. It, it yeah. does seem comp I, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't really want to discuss this at perhaps too much length because I wasn't, I wasn't sure if we should raise it actually, but it does raise the question, I suppose, on this idea about what, the teachers in the classroom represent. I mean, this idea of who arms the teachers, the question is, who are the teachers who are going to be armed? I bet we could probably work out roughly who most people would expect them to be. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of subtext there. And, you know, you have a little bit of the dynamic of, you know, the anti-establishment and acting like, becomes to act like the establishment, a little bit of the Tocqueville in there. So there's all sorts of paradoxes and and irony there but yeah i know we digress on this subject matter but uh but th this is as it relates to education just one of of many many elements that certainly could 
use more discussion and more more uh, cultural competency applied to this. Yeah, I think it's one we need to do a, a, a detailed show on at some later stage. Actually, if you, absolutely, we, you know, delighted to have you come back on to talk about that specific sure. specific issue. Um, if we're thinking about this sense of things potentially moving in a positive direction with the right support and the right encouragement in the classroom for students as they come out of COVID and try to recover any education they have or haven't lost, given they're in competition with their peers in many cases. How does that filter through, do you think, to cultivating independence? Were there any positive gains from the online or home learning experience that you noticed in your context? Yes, I do see for some students that their level of efficacy has improved. So instead of thinking that I have to wait for the professor, for the teacher, for the powers that be in the school to begin the lesson or to begin inculcating us, if you will, you know what, I can begin that on my own and start to look at the layout of the class, like really understanding how this class is mapped out from the very beginning to the end, seeing what's expected, see the learning outcomes, and begin to internalize that and start applying it and looking at that more, more carefully just because, well, we're required to do so. And I think that combined with the deadlines and combined with maybe less banter that may otherwise have distracted it may have been pleasant enough but it may have been more of a distraction i think some have learned how to focus more i think that's good my own level of efficacy has increased as well too and, and i see that with other other students as well so i think that's excellent some people have learned how to balance between other sorts of projects if it means working in industry while also finishing up school. So I think that that is good to that sense of, of agency uh, to have people, students more industrious. So I am encouraged with that. And just the hybrid model itself. Uh, I, I think that people really see that, you know, this, this can work in certain circumstances. There is data that shows that a lot of online learning actually was to the detriment of students. So that has to be worked on. But that generally, from what I understand, was where online learning was effectively replacing, you know, the in-person Socratic way of learning. Like you said, your students are now enjoying and, and a lot of my students were glad to be there face to face as well, too. But but a hybrid way can reinforce one another if the sweet spot can be found. And I think there's more work to do in that way. But I, I would say that's probably something that's positive, really, to see how you can maybe scale more of the hybrid model. I know that that's already in practice in a lot of places, but seeing it in mass in the way that it was did benefit other other people. And I think that's something worthy of, of investigating. Is that something you've held to in your own teaching? I have, uh, especially in terms of the efficacy, meaning to really to say, okay, I wanna make sure that I'm evaluating these essays. I'm giving them all of the qualities that they've gotten before, but I'm being more intentional with giving them good feedback, but doing so promptly. 
because they need to be engaged. Remember, again, the competition with the blinking screen is Mm. fierce. And on top of that, knowing that there already was, but particularly now, a lot more apathy among students, I find that, well, if they're seeing that I'm committed to giving them feedback within a week time, within a week, like I had promised to do, and I'm consistent with that, I saw other students stepping it up as well, too, so that they would sustain a flow, sustain a rhythm. So, yeah, I think that that's some of the silver lining is being more intentional, being more efficient, being more engaged, especially when there are distances online. So, sure, I I think that that's one of the silver linings for this. Okay, so that might be something worth holding on to. It's been fascinating exploring those particular areas, Ronnie. We're going to go to the news now, and then after the news, we'll pick up this question about identity and the teacher's role in student identity formation, and then close by looking at wisdom in education, if that's okay with you. Excellent. Fantastic. Yep, I think it's going to work well. We're going to go to the news now then. And for those people who are listening online, please do feel free to call or text in in the second part of the show. We'd be very pleased to hear from you and your thoughts on some of these quite significant issues that affect us both in America and in the UK. But, you know, this is a global experience of education that we've just come out of through the pandemic. So we'd be interested to hear how it's affecting the way in which your students see teachers in your schools. But we'll be straight back after the news. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. SteveWoods.co.uk for educational support in IT and computer science. Coming up, I'm delivering a number of courses. Learn to program in Python is a free one-hour course designed to start you on your way into Python coding. Everything works in a browser, so there's nothing to install beforehand. Join me remotely to learn the basics on Wednesday the 8th of June, 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock. Visit SteveWoods.co.uk to start your journey. Are you a state school teacher in England? Why not be a hero this half-term and join me for two days and receive up to 1,360 pounds in bursary terms and conditions apply find out more at stevewoods.co.uk if you're listening to this then we know we share one thing in common a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves 
That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. A school on a remote Scottish island is looking for a new head teacher. Fuller is the most remote island in the United Kingdom and has a population of just 28. The island off the coast of Shetland has one tiny primary school with only four pupils on roll, plus one child in the nursery. The current head teacher is retiring, although she has said she will stay in the role until a replacement can be found. The post is described by Shetland Islands Council as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and a chance for the right applicant to create an idyllic island home. Anyone interested in the post has until June the 6th to apply. BBC News reports that some teaching unions are calling for an end to teachers on the Isle of Man having their pay awards linked to England. The NASUWT has formally rejected the government's latest pay offer and Damien McNulty of the union said it was time for Isle of Man specific pay. National Education Union has accepted the deal under the offer, teachers on the Isle of Man would be paid 1% above the current London fringe scale. Mr McNulty said the offer had been formally rejected as there was no acknowledgement on how to deal with the 30% erosion in pay in the last 12 years, which he says is caused by linking Manx teachers' pay awards to those in England. Northern Ireland's Education Minister has announced the launch of special Jubilee curriculum resources to help young people understand the significance of Queen Elizabeth II's historic reign. The resources are fully aligned with the curriculum and the programme will be targeted at Key Stage 2 and 3. The resources are suitable for both mainstream and special school settings. The Minister encouraged everyone to get involved in the full range of activities, which include writing poetry, a Jubilee bake-off and a summer fair. In the United Arab Emirates, there are signs that students are picking non-traditional university courses. Data science, engineering and accounting have long been popular courses, but UCAS have highlighted an increase in applications for subjects including designing film sets, establishing restaurants and working as art therapists. The change in direction is welcomed by many who are pleased to see an increase in support for the often neglected art subjects. In 2021, the UK media reported that the country faced a loss of around 400,000 jobs in the creative industry due to the pandemic. It is clear from this new data that, for some, the passion for the arts and creativity remains. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about virtual tours. Did you know you can go virtually almost anywhere without leaving the classroom? Due to this being an audio podcast, I'd just like to point out to listeners, I did air quotes around the word virtually just then. 
On Sunday, I tweeted a great list to start from created by Katie Burke of Good Housekeeping. Before you start asking why someone as cool as me is reading Good Housekeeping, a good list is a good list. I'm going to tweet a different virtual tour at TT Radio every day this week. So keep an eye out if you want to pick up a new virtual tour. So what is a virtual tour? They take many forms, but my favourites are interactive. Go to a place like the Louvre and look around without the need to buy a ticket, queue and even have an unobstructed view. Use snipping or print screen to make a storyboard then reflect on your journey for an activity. There are virtual tours for lots of things you wouldn't think of. I found one for the digestion process where you can look around whilst being swallowed, digested and yes, it finishes with you being excreted. Lovely. Next time you're looking for a way to explain something, just check and see if there's a virtual tour that can support you. I'll be tweeting at TT Radio 2022 a different tour each day this week. Yet another good reason to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. I'm discussing independent learning and identity formation with college professor, coach and writer, Dr. Ronna Gladden. And we would love to hear your thoughts on these themes as we move on to discuss identity formation and the place of wisdom in the education system. What role do teachers and coaches play in helping students shape their own personal identities? What identities do students build for themselves that extend beyond their academic learning? And how do students learn to identify with the variety of different people who teach them? Call us now and share your thoughts this evening. So, Ronnie, shall we open with that first question then? What role do you think teachers and coaches play in helping students establish their own identities? Absolutely. I think that teachers and coaches should do some modeling with respect to being an evolved human being, not necessarily taking on the stance of I'm modeling for you what it's like just to be the sum of their parts, meaning you don't necessarily have to think with intentionality of this is what a man does or this is what a woman does per se, but just you being your personality, you being the sum of your narratives and the sum of your experiences I think can really impact students and some of the other things that may be more gendered may come later but I think showing your best self your most read self your most traveled self you know you doing the work to be physically healthy mentally healthy I think that that's what we can do is, is to reflect back to a younger generation what it was that we benefited from, how we took the best of those that modeled things for us as we were growing up. Okay, so this sense of this sense of modeling as being something that's quite important, how does that change in the relationships and discussions you have with those students? Change well, I think it changes in terms of them seeing that they'll have to adapt to their circumstances, to their environment, you know, because this is a hyper-connected world and we're moving to Web3 and many people think that Web3 is here with respect to the internet and 
you know, the forthcoming metaverse and things along those lines. So there are some things that are new, and in terms of the change, one will have to adapt to that. But just baseline, I think that ultimately, if students are recognizing that they are a kind of instrument, if you will, of nature, of society, and they can leverage that to help to improve things. And we really outlined in the beginning of the show how there's a lot that could stand to be improved inside of education, you know, from kindergarten through to university, et cetera, then that's mm. where things are going to be, you know, most impactful. So how do you use your life, use your experience, your, your momentum to be that force for the kinds of changes that are needed. And as you move through the school sector, I'm thinking as you move through to, I suppose, what BK12 in your context, as the students move through that system towards university, is there a system that needs to be implemented? Is there a system that needs to be changed in giving students that kind of advice and encouragement to help them form a truer sense of themselves? I think maybe enforcement of a lot of the systems that already exist. So earlier I mentioned that there is what's called a college credit plus program inside of the state of Ohio and many other states inside of the union also have similar sorts of programs where students sometimes as young as in middle school can all, which would be around age, ages 12 or 13 to give you more context are already taking college credit classes, liberal arts classes, general education classes. And there are more stories I've seen where students in K-12 are graduating from college first, ironically enough, before mm -hmm. they're even getting their high school diplomas. So I think that that's a good system that helps to make higher education more accessible and using that as a model, we can extrapolate that towards more character development, more auxiliary clubs and auxiliary clubs that can be interfaced there too, so that some of the students can gain access to supporting resources and not just the academic. Now, some of the students that are in College Credit Plus, for example, they actually have access to the campus and they can participate in the life of higher education. Obviously their parents will evaluate how much they want their students to do that. But I think if more opportunities of that nature exist, where it's the co-curricular as well as the primary curriculum combined, that that would be really useful for students in their identity formation to begin surveying and canvassing you know, what's out there in the society. Hmm. In the UK, all of our, well, certainly in England, all of our students uh, by law are required to receive some form of, it's essentially character education. It's, it's given a different name, social, moral, spiritual education, uh, up to the age of 18. Does something similar happen in your context in America? It is not necessarily mandated in that way at that legislative or policy level, but it does happen in pockets. I know that in some of the Catholic schools, for instance, they have what's called Kairos, 
and they end up going on a spiritual retreat and there is a code of, of honor where you respect the sensibilities of others and you keep a level of confidentiality in terms of what one discloses because there are some vulnerable topics that may result as, in the quest of helping one to refine their character and to improve that in their relationship with their faith. So I know that that retreat happens in a lot of the parochial schools, but because there is an element of, you know, separation of church from state and things like that, that's, that's pretty prevalent here. Uh, it's not so much mandated, but there are opportunities for leadership and for character development if one is intentional to identify them and they do that independently. But I think that, yeah, to your point, maybe something along those lines scaled out to more districts, more schools would be beneficial. And that model, I think, could, could dovetail really well with a sort of a college credit plus or, or college credit dynamic that exists. Absolutely. So such a system then would be determined on a state by state level and then on a school board level, would it? Yeah, yeah, it's more of a state by state and really just kind of district by district or in, and in some instances, even just the, the school itself, uh, you have a lot of, of differences in different types of schools. So yeah, maybe a little bit more unity around that uh, cohesion would be good. And do you have specific teachers who are trained in delivering that kind of educational experience? A lot of those teachers that are trained for that would be teaching in the parochial schools, most likely. Uh, I do remember in my teacher training program that we had to sign a statement on character and moral integrity, you know, that we as students at that time in that teacher education program affirmed that we were individuals of, of being above board and, you know, being of you know, good moral reproach and what have you. Now, that particular institution that I attended, interesting, interestingly enough, uh, is a Jesuit institution. Mm -hmm. Now, the other sorts of universities where I graduated from, and you mentioned them in the outset, uh, they weren't requiring that. Now, I was in some different programs, but again, I think it just goes to show what's the specific mission of, of the school. So it's, um, it's a little bit more divergent here. Yeah, it's, it's certainly an interesting thing to think about because in my own context, I work in independent school. It's a, it's a Roman Catholic independent school, a boarding school, mm -hmm. and all of the teachers pretty much universally across the school estate are personal tutors to maybe a group of between, say, seven and ten students. And their role essentially is to guide or counsel the students through the year. Now, in some cases, the students will stay with the same member of staff all the way through their, um, certainly all the way through their key stages, which is our group of years. So year seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, and then 12 and 13, which are our 16 to 18 years. And the kind of, the kind of experience of working with students in that way is quite radically different in some ways to working with them in the classroom. So they'll bring to you their academic anxiety issues. They'll bring to you their 
you know, issues of falling out with one other member of the community or somebody else. And our job is as much in that context to listen to them. And if they want guidance, then to offer it to them, perhaps when they've had a chance to think about their own way forward first. But it's it's quite a powerful it's quite a powerful experience actually to be involved with. And we are all involved in delivering some aspect of this social, moral, spiritual education, both within our work in the English department, but also on this kind of wider pastoral level. I wondered if there's any kind of similar experience outside of the Christian schools in America that we could we could think about perhaps developing. Yeah, that is really excellent because as you said that it just really highlighted a more holistic approach with respect to the students and i think that is key to fostering the sort of cultural competency and having more of a sea change like we were saying to move away from a gun culture and things along those lines uh, what you mentioned made me think of a lot of the liberal arts colleges that exist in the states and they're smaller colleges generally on average there may be 1500 to 2000 students for the entire student body sometimes even less than that and the class size ratio rather than you know one to several hundred like you can have in a large state university you can have in some cases you know for every one teacher you may have 10 students or 15 students in the class and those professors actually have a sort of similar relationship like you mentioned. Like, yes, they do teach the curriculum, so everything that's from the neck up, absolutely, they get that and they should and they're rigorous with it. But they also have more of a open door policy in terms of, you know, we can get a bunch of students together, go to lunch and maybe even dinner and work out some problems. One particular college that I had some correspondence with, their professors actually have even hosted students at their home. Now that can be controversial for some, but the culture at that college was that the professor is accessible. Uh, this professor won't just tell you about what's happening on Broadway and as a way to have a curriculum, you know, learning outcomes, but they will actually shepherd those students and take them to New York and go to Broadway and chaperone and host them there so that they can make applications in the way that they need to. And then, as you mentioned, some of their personal elements in their lives, you know, like they're having whatever issues that it may be, any grievances or things like that can come out. So yeah, it's more holistic in that way. So those liberal arts colleges do things like that. And uh, I think that, yeah, I think that that's certainly one approach to to fostering and ministering to students. Yeah, so there's there's this complex relationship, isn't there, in, in the classroom that teachers kind of have to negotiate. This sense of being the person that teaches the academic content, the person who also helps the students fix problems they might have. Of course, not all problems are fixable. Sure. And um, not all students necessarily want their problems fixed by a third party. But there's, there's also that slightly different sense of the teacher 
as a kind of role model, not necessarily an image of perfection, but somebody to whom people look up to, one would hope. In in many cultures, it's, it's less the case here in the UK um, than it has been in the past. But is there something of that still alive and well? I think so. And, and that's similar to where we started at the top of this discussion is modeling for students the best. Uh, what is it Matthew Arnold uh, has said, you know, culture and anarchy, you know, from the 19th century, you know, culture being the pursuit of our total perfection. You know, I love that, that statement from him, you know, the best of what you have to offer as a culture, you know, across the gamut. And I think that that's the power in what, you know, an effective educator can do. And those that are staff as well, those that uh, complement what the faculty does, you know, you, you model the best of what you have to offer, you know, culturally. And I think that, that there is a wake up call there. Now, there's, of course, pushback where there are, you know, professors that say, you know, look, I'm here to profess. I'm not here to be a social worker. You know, hmm. I'm not here, you know, for to be a counselor. You know, I'm not here for mental health. Uh, things along those lines. And I mean, in some ways, I do appreciate that. I respect that. A lot of PhD programs, as you know, are very myopic, very, you know, focused on being the expert in the subject matter. And there's a reason for that. But in the sort of time that we're in, as we said, that there's a lot that's being renegotiated, you know, in terms of the social contract and how we're reflecting on that. Love it or hate it, we're here for students centric experience and uh, a lot of those liberal arts colleges were already doing that the sort of college where i am which is teaching focused that dynamic exists as well but i think that in order for many institutions higher ed even also you know k-12 to remain competitive because you know i mentioned that there are enrollment challenges across from p through 20 or k through university more of the student-centric approach will will be needed. It takes a village, as they've said. <laughs> mm -hmm. It certainly does. The village is getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> and how does this relate then to your research work on intersectional identity? How has that played out in your experience in the classroom? So in terms of that, the intersectional has aligned with, with greater authenticity, you know, and being willing to be vulnerable and truthful, but in the right way, not to be emotionally incontinent, you know, not mm -hmm. to just uh, spew things just because remember it, we are there for a primary focus of learning and there's a certain sort of dynamic that you want to have. But at the same time, I think if, if we are attempting to be models for students so that they can learn in a holistic fashion and we're looking to work with them, we just as well have to be holistic ourselves and how we view our identities in the sort. And uh, my research has looked at the complex intersection of race and gender, for instance, and I've written about that. Um, I have a book that is coming out on that where I disclose about my own improbable identity. So I present and look you know, as black and male, but internally I've identified as, as white and female, believe it or not. So I guess I've said that, you know, I'm 
white and female in my aspirations, but black and male in my complications. And so I think that's what intersectionality does is look, looks at the aspirations and complications of people. And, and what does that mean? And, and what is it for students? So students may very well may not be the opposite of everything in the way that I am, but they have nonetheless a similar dynamic that they've had hmm. to contend with during this pandemic where they are still developing in a lot of ways. Now I have generally a, a, adults that I work with, but again, I do have some CCP students, as I mentioned. And so that means that they're minors, so they're still developing. And the irony is that they've been confronted with a lot of adult responsibilities, a lot of adult challenges when they're not yet adults. Mm. That alone is the paradox of being the opposite of everything, the opposite of what it is that they are. And they've had to contend with that. So I think that that's sort of a takeaway. So the intersectional looks at, yeah, those aspirations, those complications and and what that means for learning, because and then we get into the cultural competency element again. And, you know, who's who controls what's correct in terms of the archetype of a person versus the stereotype of the person and, and all these kinds of things there. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of nuance to be said with with that. And, and I think the nice thing is so many students have demonstrated that they are willing to have the identity discussions. We, we've seen that in the States. I know you see that in your country and in Europe and, and around. So that is a good thing. There is a head start on, on divergent identities and really showing that people are so much more than the sum of their parts. So that's some good news that, that there's a lot of traction on that already. And and you find that many people get liberated as they learn. So there's a lot to, to celebrate in, in this way of identity and intersectionality. And how significant is it as a research area at the moment at HE level? How significant is intersectionality? Yeah, this, this, this emerging discourse of, of what we expect identities to be and what identities may actually oh. be in reality. Well, I think there's a lot that's, you know, it's funny. I mean, th there's so much to unpack because many have been forthright maybe in the last 10 or so years in ways like they haven't been before. But at the same time, it's fueling a lot of culture wars where right when there are breakthroughs and discuss discovering and discussing more, say, on transgender identity, non-conformity, non-conforming identity, binary, things along those lines, race and all of that, now... It's, I mentioned advance and retreat earlier. Now it's being squelched where there are a number of governors that are signing laws and states that say that you cannot discuss CRT, critical race theory. You cannot discuss gender identity. You cannot do those kinds of things. And, and some, certain things are age appropriate, and I can respect that. But there's a lot of vague language that is included in the statute that effectively puts these kinds of discussions on complex identity on the defensive where one could be sued and therefore mm. you have a lot of fearful educators now. So just when there, yes, there is a lot of uh, stories that were not a part of the cultural lore and they were coming out now, some of that is, is, being, is being challenged yet again and is uh, being forced into into those silos so 
we have to we have to be open about this, you know, because again, this will help to foster that cultural competency and and really working to to help with our learning, you know, because that that is so so critical the educational process, absolutely. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. I mean, we've been in the past teaching. Uh, had a couple of students recently actually who've written extended projects which is something to do as an extra qualification for us at the age of 17 18 on the works of oscar wilde and if you don't have a sense of what he thought his identity was then much of his literary work becomes almost impossible to analyze meaningfully oh for certain yeah oscar wilde excellent person there and just you know tying to other themes we mentioned, you know, in terms of one having to be imprisoned, you know, there was someone there, you know, brilliant and ended up being imprisoned, you know, for his identity, for his practices, but at the same time, you know, being a sort of model with respect to being a cultural disruptor, you know, agent of chaos and, and also a part of that culture being the pursuit of our total perfection, him, you know, developing, you know, the importance of being earnest and, and works that are still regarded today and, and uh, what's attributed to him, you know, art and life imitating, you know, life imitating art, all those sorts of things like that. So, yeah, in in Wild, we see a lot of those uh, aspirations and complications, like I was just referring to, so quite the intersectional lightning rod, as you had just pointed out, absolutely. Yeah, you certainly do, particularly if you read his uh, more mature prose work alongside some of the fairy tales that he wrote for children absolutely fantastically moving fairy tales a happy prince among them uh, my favorite the the nightingale and the rose which i think is particularly powerful and just looking at the way students respond to them and teaching them to different age groups with a different focus you know teaching a 14 year old the story of the happy prince and giving them a kind of received meaning that we've we've judged appropriate for them would be rather different from the meaning you might give to say a 16 or 17 year old oh certainly <laughs> for sure dynamic and as we think about particular changes to curriculum in the united states we've over here had the big argument about well, we haven't quite worked out this answer yet about how we decolonize a curriculum that is assumed to be colonized. Is there any sense in which there's a movement to try and get more people of a particular intersectional identity into school curriculums in America? Yes, in spite of the culture wars, in spite of the pushback, there are people that are more they're more lionized and galvanized than ever. For instance, there is a school in Texas, I believe, that has formed a band book club and they did just that. They looked, they generated a list of banned books from their district. And not only do they have a club to discuss the content, to discuss the works of marginalized identities, BIPOC, individuals, you know, people that are, are black, indigenous, people of color, uh, LGBTQ plus, ability, status, whatever it is, 
but they they want to broadly disseminate that and not only have they done that some of the some of the uh individuals in different schools they've sued the districts you know under the the or in the name of violation of a freedom of speech and you know freedom of, of thought and things like that and some of the districts have ended up actually reinstituting some of those books that they've banned so there is a hard evidence example right there of our students taking it head on taking authority and getting work done which is excellent and those are some k-12 students uh, these students happen to appear on uh, good morning america so i guess that's similar to good morning britain that you mm. have in your country and they discuss that you know this is what they did and, and they're looking to continue to do it um, a, I think a district in Missouri had something similar where, where they sued and, uh, and now there's some ongoing litigation. But yes, and, and the reason why is what the students and the community said what we're saying is that they realize that there's room for cultural pluralism. You know, there's room to have a broadened narrative. I think it was uh, Chaminade Ngazi Adichie. You know, uh, she did a, a well-seen uh, TED Talk where she spoke about the dangers of the single story mm -hmm. and effectively, yeah, you're probably familiar with that, where she's saying that, you know, in her experience, you know, growing up, you know, in an African continent that she, she loved reading and she read certain books, but the books were of a limited perspective. It was one sort of culture it, it, for her it was Eurocentric and that was great. I mean, she liked that, but she wanted to see others. She wanted to see more stories and, so yeah, so there is that warning there. So that that is the good news is is you do have people that are talking about this. I think my book is looking at this as well too, especially since race, as I was saying before, for many people was seen as not malleable. And I'm saying not only is it malleable, but you know you can end up having an exactly opposite, exactly oppositional identity here. You know, there's a story that's unfolding for me. I'm thankful for my ancestors and them triumphing and the sort but but that they had their time this is my time here and there's mm. the things that i get to interface and add on to not necessarily to er i'm not saying erasure but it's just this is what it is for me and i'm adding on to that kind of palimpsest of what they what they gave and i'm, I'm adding on to that and i think the students and others are doing those kinds of things too so um, so that is the good news, yes, that there's, there is a call for this. And it seems like people are hungry for that in your neck of the woods as well. Yeah, we've got one student this year, actually, who's just finished. Um, so would be 18 now, has just written an independent project on Flowers for Algernon, which was oh, a banned yeah. book for quite a while in some states in America, I seem to remember. Oh, yes, that had, yes, yes, that uh, work from Toni Morrison as of, as of late, you know, Nobel, you know, uh, prize winner in literature, uh, her works, uh, Maya Angelou, um, absolutely, Mark Twain, uh, for sure, yes, uh, a lot of classics and, and contemporary works as well, too, you know, some, not all boys wear blue, I mean, that's, that's a new one, so, yeah, um, this is certainly a debate and again the silver lining is that we're having the debate so it's not full-out censorship and that it just is 
unilaterally determined that there won't be any discussions of these uh, titles at all. I mean, I think there's certainly the attempt with that, and that's where it starts. But as we mentioned, we definitely have those that are vigilant, and they and they fight back. And and then sometimes you get reversals on things. So so we're I think we're in the right in the right place to to be debating. So is there a sense then that we think our educational governors are getting wiser over time? <laughs> well, that's that's certainly that's certainly the hope. Uh, wiser and a bit more proactive, you know, in terms of yeah, in terms of of challenging the status quo. And some of this, I'm sure, is is classic. You know, where you have debates you know between the administration and between what happens in school or debates between of course the government and the people so in this way it's it's pretty classical but with you know the advent of social media like we like we have it we do get to see i think with much more velocity much more depth and breadth of of people that are that are advocating so um, some of that power for the people dynamic is there. So hopefully, yes, if, if they're wise, then they will want to learn how to harness this information and or that power and not, not be consumed by it. Well, that's, that's promising to hear. So we will keep our eyes peeled for the uh, new wisdom announcements coming from the people in charge across the pond. <laughs> yes, we, we shall. I'm afraid we've come to the end, Ronnie. We've, we could go on for another few hours, but we'll certainly have you back on another show in, in the future to talk about some of these some of these secondary themes we've explored tonight. I've really, really enjoyed our discussion. Oh, likewise. Me too. This has been my pleasure. Yeah, the, the time just, just went by, evaporated pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, it, it's strange, isn't it? We, we have so many things in common between the United States and the United Kingdom. Um, but it's never quite it's never quite clear where that commonality ends and that difference begins. For sure. And of course it, it started with with you on your side of the of the pond. So yeah, there's there's a lot that you have <laughs> that uh, has been contributed here in terms of culture and that theme of, you know, breaking out for independence and, and starting something new. So, so all of that is, is interconnected. Absolutely. A, a good, a good week to be discussing it as we prepare to celebrate the Jubilee of our monarch. It is very good. That for sure is true. And then Memorial Day weekend that's here in the States. Absolutely. So there's a lot going on in these next two months. It is, it is, and we're doing our best to, to work with it. Brilliant. Ronnie, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on. Thank you very much indeed oh, for giving friend. up your time to talk to us this evening. Um, again, we will certainly return with another show, I think, looking at these kind of connections between the United States and the UK. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a great evening. Thank you. Good night. Good night. And so as time's winged chariot hurrieth near, we have just about come to the end of this month's 
Late Show, in which I hope you have learned as much about intersectional identities, formation, and cultivating student independence as I have. I hope the thoughts of Ronnie have prompted you to think a little bit more carefully about how we might make our educational institutions places where people can feel comfortable about expressing themselves for who they are. Thank you again to Dr. Ronnie Gladden for being such an excellent guest. Thanks to everyone who has tuned in tonight. If you haven't already heard, we've moved over to a new schedule this month on Teachers Talk Radio. So tomorrow's schedule kicks off with Rebecca Ricketts on The Twilight Show at 6pm, I think, before Tom Rogers hosts a Twitter Spaces late show at 7.30pm. Do take a look at the exciting new shape of the week on Teachers Talk Radio by checking out www.ttradio.org to make sure you don't miss any live broadcasts by your favourite hosts. Don't forget that you can also download and catch up with every Teachers Talk radio show on the website's Listen Again facility with shows on education topics to inform, inspire and entertain. What better way to spend part of your half-term holiday than listening to my Teachers Talk radio colleagues. That's it from me for this month. So thank you for listening. Keep a calm head as the exam season draws to a close and we will speak again in June. Goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.